The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. I'll refer to the apple. It'll help me make a couple of points later in the message. I have prayed that in the next few minutes, the superiority of Jesus, the superiority of Jesus would inflame our motivation to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. I don't know if you noticed in the text that Daniel just read, but the very first word is since. Since. He's making an argument that because of credentials that Jesus has, therefore we should draw near. Or later on the word then. Let us then with confidence. Let us then means on account of certain things that are true about Jesus. On account of those things, let us draw near. To inflame our motivation, mine included, I want to address four questions. The first question I want to address is, what is the function of a high priest? Why should we care? I mean, how would that inflame our motivation to draw near? I mean, you come this morning to church thinking, I need a high priest. I think very few people in Western culture woke up this morning thinking, give me a high priest. Boys, you might been, have been thinking, what I want is a Lego Minecraft set. That's what I want. Give me that. Or an American Girl doll. Huh, girls? Or give me a graduate degree, young adults. Or give me better health insurance, seniors. But we all need, need a high priest. What's its function? That's the first question. Second question is, what are Jesus' credentials for being a high priest? What's so special about him? What uniquely qualifies him to be that high priest? Third question, what is the throne of grace and why draw near to something like that? Perhaps the chair, thrones are chairs, perhaps the chair you would like to draw near to is a lazy boy in front of the TV during the playoffs. Or maybe the chair you want to draw near to is at the 50-yard line. Or maybe the chair you want to draw to is at the pedicure salon. A little pampering at that chair. Do we wake up in the morning thinking, take me to the throne of grace? What is the throne of grace? Fourth question, what does holding fast have to do with praying? How can we hold fast with confidence and pray with confidence? So question number one, what's a high priest and so what? In eternity past, before there was any earth, God ordained and determined that we simply could not understand who Jesus was, his identity, his role, the nature of his work, if God did not first provide us with a context, a history, and so he developed this whole complicated system of sacrifices, including the tabernacle, at which the high priest once a year would go through this curtain into what was called the Holy of Holies, where there was a mercy seat, and he would splatter blood in there from a dead animal. There had to be death because of sin. God wanted us to understand this about his son, that he performs that kind of a function. He's not just our friend, 
not just our brother. He is those things perfectly, but he's something else. He's a high priest, and it's important for us to understand what that is. Now, our main problem is not COVID, not climate change, it's not the Taliban, it's not cancer, it's not political corruption. Our main problem is God. He's unapproachably holy. And the second part of our problem is us. The heart of our problem is the problem of the heart. We're sinful. We don't want to approach God. We want to run from God or ignore God if he'll let us. Third part of our problem is, therefore, because there's this unapproachably holy God and there's this sinful man, me, who doesn't want him to approach me, lest he burn me to toast, there's a chasm. There's a gap. We just sang about a chasm. In fact, the song had the word chasm in it. This was what you just sang. How great the chasm that lay between us. It includes an alienation, judgment, even wrath. We probably should comment on what wrath is because I think our culture thinks that God finally uh, runs out of patience, he has a hissy fit, and, and throw, so he storms around and throws things or something. Wrath is, is different. It's not moody. Wrath is a settled, fixed, determined response to certain things. And I think you can identify with it because in your own life, you probably, yourself, have a serious and wise animosity to black mold. If you have black mold in your house, you don't get all riled up and throw a hissy fit and throw chairs and clench your teeth. and what. You have already determined, already, that if you find black mold, you're going to give it what it deserves. You probably have already at your house powerful chemicals, bleach, that will kill the black mold. And we don't think, well, what's the big hissy fit? We wouldn't say that about you. We would say, good job. That's the right thing. That's the right response to black mold. Scrub it out. Tear it out if you have to. Burn down the house if you have to. That's God's wrath towards sin, and that's our problem. So you have this holy God, you have sinful man, you have this chasm, and we cannot close that chasm. We cannot come to him on our own. We cannot approach him, just like in Moses' day, when God was on the mountain, and he said, don't let anybody come near this mountain, not man or beast. They will die. We need a go-between, a reconciler, a bridge. It's called a priest who performs sacrifices for atonement, thereby bringing man to God. So God established this system of sacrifices, but there was a major twofold glitch in the problem, or limitations, and he put them in there on purpose. The first glitch was that the high priests needed their own sins atoned for. They weren't sinless themselves. How can a sinner take sinners to God? And the second glitch was the blood of bulls. 
couldn't do it either. The inadequacy of the priests and the bulls points to something else and someone else. The Old Testament system of sacrifices relentlessly points to Jesus. So the second question I asked is, what are Jesus' credentials then to be this high priest? Well, the text that we looked at gives us four credentials. The first one is in verse 14. He passed through the heavens, coming and going. No other priest has this credential. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. Passed through the heavens. This is the Christmas story. Incarnation. And dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Hang on to that phrase, only Son. It's gonna, we're going to come back around to it in just a moment. The only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then Acts 1.9. As they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him up out of their sight. He passed through the heavens, coming and going. No other priest meets that qualification. Second credential, verse 14. He's the Son of God. We just saw it in John 1. The only Son from the Father. The only begotten of the Father. The Son in whom He's well pleased. No other priest has this credential. Third credential, verse 15. In every respect, tempted as we are. Okay, show of hands, how many of you have ever been tempted? Okay, most of you. Well, Jesus is like you in that respect, that he was tempted. The earlier part of that same verse says he was able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows what it's like to be exposed to temptation. When you come to him loaded with your sorrow, you come to the one who knows all the sorrows to which one can be subjected. He looks upon our misery with a tender I, he was tempted in all points. Like how? Well, we know specifically and explicitly that he was tempted in the wilderness when Satan was there getting him to try to test God, and he responded, you shouldn't test the Lord your God. He, was, he could have been, we can imagine, he was tempted to dishonor his parents when they were more strict than others, and they didn't even understand what his mission was. Don't you know I must be about my father's business? He could have been tempted to steal when he saw the accoutrements that others had. He was at a lot of parties of rich people. You remember he went into Zacchaeus' house, and Zacchaeus, even after he gave away most of his wealth, was still a very wealthy man. And Jesus could have said, I'll have some of that. Could have. He could have been tempted to covet. He could have been tempted to lust. He did, after all, have a woman wash his feet with her own hair. He could have been tempted to murmur at God when his colleague his esteemed colleague, about whom he said, there's no one greater born among women. John the Baptist has his head cut off because a dancing girl asks for it on a platter. He could have murmured at God, what kind of a divine plan is this? He could have been tempted to gloat over his accusers when they couldn't answer his questions. You guys are stupid. He could have been tempted to lie to save his life. could have been tempted to take revenge, even on the cross. He could have been tempted to pout with self-pity when his disciples abandoned him, fell asleep in his final hours. 
And I'd like to spend a moment on this. He could have been tempted to abandon his whole mission on account of misery. And I think he tells us that he was tempted in this way. Many of you know that I recently suffered a punctured and collapsed lung, and for four days I couldn't take a satisfying breath. As part of the whole process to address what was going on in my body, the medical practitioners uh, called for a, an MRI, a magnetic resonance imaging thing. It's a tube they slide your body into, and I was confident that I could endure the claustrophobia because I'd had MRIs before, but this time I was wearing a COVID mask, and this time I had a dryness in the back of my throat, and I had <coughs> some, <coughs> even now, this is providential, a little phlegm asking to be discharged, and they informed me that the process would take about an hour, a half hour, half hour, 30 minutes. So before sliding into the tube, I was given a bulb in my left hand so that if I felt the need to escape the tube, I could squeeze the bulb and they would extract me. So in I go, through my headset, I hear a recorded female voice say, take a deep breath and hold it. So I do, perhaps five seconds, perhaps eight. Continue breathing, she says. Remember that I'll be at this for about a half hour. Another deep breath, another hold. At two points in the process, the technician instructs me to hold my breath for 20 seconds. I thought about doing an audience participation thing here for 20 seconds, but <laughs> I got to move along here. So hold your breath for 20 seconds. I do. But when freed to resume breathing, I breathe a little heavily because I'm kind of panting because I've been holding my breath for 20 seconds. This creates more dryness in the back of my throat. The mask interferes. I can't seem to get enough air, and I'm starting to sweat. And I have a rising fear of choking on that glob of phlegm. And if I choke, I can't sit up or even roll over to one side. In the tube, I cannot lift my arms to adjust my mask. My arms are straight down at my sides, and my resolve is weakening substantially. I'm not being waterboarded and I'm not drowning, but the dynamics are parallel. There's a rising sense of get me out of here. Oh, how badly I wanted to squeeze that bulb. I tried to clear my throat. I prayed. I tried to ignore the thirst for fresh air. I tried to focus on the music. But the woman's voice kept telling me, take a breath and hold it. I was on the razor's edge of panic, which is not, I don't live in panic world often, but I was on the verge there. Well, on the cross, Jesus had a bulb. When he struggled for each breath, he had a bulb. He could have called off all the torture. He tells us, Matthew 26, 53, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? He's tempted to give up on the whole mission, I think. And he knows it. How did he do it? 
I mean, I was only lying in a tube, voluntarily holding my breath for snatches of time. Nobody's punching me, nobody's pushing thorns onto my head, nobody's whipping me into a bloody pulp, putting nails through my extremities, crucifying me for hours. I did have a needle in my arm, but no nails in my hands and feet. No one could do to Jesus what they did unless he enabled and empowered them to do it to him. The nails didn't hold him to the cross. He held the nails to the cross. How? Supernatural resolve. What an exceptional priest. I have to believe he was tempted to quit. I mean, he prayed. Is there any way, Father, that this cup could pass from me? He's fondling that bulb in that prayer. I was moments away from squeezing that bulb, and I only endured a half hour, checkered breathing, with music and a headset. Jesus exhausted temptation. I'm not saying Jesus was exhausted, though he probably was. I'm saying he exhausted temptation. He outlasted temptation. Temptation gave up on him after 30-some years of overcoming it. Tempted in every point. Every other priest does have this credential, that they're tempted. But that leads us to his fourth credential in verse 15. Yet without sin. No other priest has this credential. He meets both the requirements of a Passover lamb. He had to be from the flock and he had to be without blemish. And he's both. Now, because God is holy and demands death for sin, every year a priest, the high priest, would come into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the altar just as it was commanded, but it was not enough to pay for our sins and close that gap. On one occasion, they sacrificed 36 bulls, 72 rams, 72 male lambs, a year old, 72 male goats for a sin offering, and burned some grain, and it wasn't enough. Every year the ground was slippery with the blood of bulls and goats and doves, and it wasn't enough. The air was thick with the smell of blood and ash. It's not enough. The priests burned incense, washed themselves, and abstained from foods. It wasn't enough. But when Jesus brings his own blood as the sacrifice, the Father looks upon it and says, that's enough. Enough. End it. All of it. That is enough. Once for all. Guilt covered. Curse removed. Alienation overcome, justice vindicated, acceptance achieved, children welcomed, adoption and belongingness accomplished, because Jesus is a better priest and a better sacrifice. Those animals, those bulls, those goats, they don't want to be sacrificed. They don't line up and say, please, me next. They, they have to be bound. Jesus volunteers, walks toward Jerusalem sets his face like a flint. I'm going in, and it'll be good. And mark this. 
If the Father didn't accept Jesus' death, the Father would dishonor the infinite worth of Jesus' blood. It's infinitely worthy. If I can put it this way, God had to accept that sacrifice on our behalf. The Father hears us because He hears His perfect Son who prays for us. Well, since Jesus has established Himself as the great high priest, what then? Well, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Draw near. That's the main point of this text right here. That's the point. You wonder, go away from this service this morning. What was the main point of the text? Draw near. Now, what is a throne of grace? Question number three. What is a throne of grace? Here we meet an amazing combination of two theological words, and I think kids can even learn these words. One is transcendence. It just means really, really high. The tip top, the apex, you can't get any higher than this. God is transcendent. He's above everything. And the other word is imminence, closeness, so close it's right here, it's in you, it's as close to you as your shadow is. Throne of grace, both melded together. This mercy seat is a seat, it's a throne, and his throne has sway in all realms. Remember, our high priest has passed through the heavens. So the heavens delight in him, and hell dreads his glance. The galaxies yield to his direction. All will worship him, willingly or unwillingly. He's our Father in heaven, the great monarch. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. He's the highest of the monarchs, the king of kings, the lord of lords. Earthly emperors don't hold a candlestick to his solar power. He sets up kings, puts them down. He's infinitely greater than we. Everything is little in comparison to him. It occurs to me this morning that I, it's in, I think, the ninth Star Wars movie where there's a character named Snoke. Is that his name? Some heads, a few heads are nodding. Snoke. He's big, and he makes all the other bad guys look dinky, look small. Well, that could be an analogy. God is big, makes everything else look small because in comparison with him, everything else is small. In prayer, we come to a throne. Therefore, we come in humility, no impertinence. We come to pay homage and honor. Anne Lamott says there are only three kinds of prayer. First kind of prayer is help. Help. All of our petitions, all of our requests for all the stuff that we want from him is basically saying, help. I don't have it. You've got it. Help. I remember when I was teaching in the public schools back in the 70s, and Vicki and I were attending a small church in Watertown, South Dakota. We went to a Wednesday night prayer meeting, and there was a new convert there. And in tears, this was her prayer. This is the sum total of her prayer. This is the whole thing. I'll quote it verbatim, the whole prayer. In tears. Help me. She didn't know how to pray. She didn't know, you know, our beneficent Father in heaven. I mean, she didn't know fancy verbiage. Just help me. That's a good prayer. And it sums up what Many of our prayers are. The second kind of prayer is thank. Thanks. First kind, help. I'm asking for help. I'm asking for help. The second kind recognizes, oh, you've already given a whole bunch. You've already given a whole bunch of stuff. You make the, the sun to rise on the good and the evil. You send the rain on the just and on the unjust. You've been taking care of me for a long time. We're going to illustrate it with this apple in just a minute. And the third kind of prayer is, wow. It's praise. 
it's adoration. It's giving glory to God. Those are the three kinds. Help, thanks, wow. Well, we come to a throne. We come for help and to say thanks and to say, wow. And God's desire is not merely to be our heart's resident, but to be our heart's president, to be the king of what goes on in here. Now, we may climb up into his lap and call him Abba, Daddy, but he remains the great king and he will be hallowed by his beloved children. So come, let us bow down, let us kneel in our hearts before the Lord, our maker. And kneel with our bodies from time to time, too. Become submissive and grateful. And we come expectantly. Oh, the great things that prayer has wrought. Conversions of loved ones. Revivals. Healings. Exorcisms. Provisions. Transformed hearts. Insight. Breakthroughs. And coming to the throne, we must invite the Spirit to put us in a right frame of reverence. Not frame of reference, but frame of reverence. We come to a throne. Now, what kind of throne? It's the throne of grace. Throne of grace. We're invited to a throne of grace. Not a throne of law. Not a throne of works. The one on this throne does not tax his subjects. He gives them gifts unendingly. He'll never give us the cold shoulder or say that we come too often. He does not pronounce verdicts of guilty upon us anymore. He delivers no sentences of condemnation upon anyone justified by grace through faith. Therefore, the right frame of reverence is humble confidence. And that's what our text said, says to us. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. It would be one thing, if, like Esther, when Esther was going to go see the king, if he does not extend his scepter to her, she's toast. She didn't know what his response would be. But we come to our Father who sits on the throne of grace, we know what his response is. All your sins have been paid for. Come on in. I've been waiting for you. The throne of grace. Since it is, any flaws in our praying will be overlooked. We don't have to be studied and be a scholar in how to pray. Just come, like the woman in Watertown. Help me. Grace not only, not only overlooks the flaws in the prayers we pray, but in the persons who are bringing those prayers. Our high priest, Jesus, bends and amends our prayers and then serves them up to God. Perfect. Perfected by his own merits. Even interprets our groanings that are too deep for words. But he understands. So what do we find at the throne of grace? The text says we find help. Sinners don't deserve help. That's why it's grace, not meritorious. Now, I want to use this apple to demonstrate a couple things about prayer, if I can, here. I would like us to pray with specificity. So if the folks with the camera can zoom in as close as they can get... <clears throat> I know they can't get really close here because this is not the Bethlehem cooking show, but, the, but um, if we observe this apple, I mean, I used to, I grew up thinking, apples are red, aren't they? Well, huh, I guess 
Some are red, and some are gold, and some are yellow, and some are green. This has a little, little uh, reddish rouge to the yellowishness here. But it, as I look close, and I don't know if you can see it, but you can imagine it, there are little um, speckles on here, little, little dots here, little dimples here, and, and there's uh, um, some very subtle like stripes that are on here, and here's a bruise there, and, uh, and I can see here where the blossom used to be, and if I look really close here, I can see there's a pattern to those dried up petals that used to be there. And at the other end of the apple, this amazes me. I'm just amazed at this, that this stem is, is a little kind of a tube thing, and all of this apple that's here got in there through the tube. All the skin, all the meat, all the seeds, everything that's in there got in there through the tube. And how did God do it? He took water in the soil and some nutrients that were dissolved in that water, sucked them up through the roots of the tree, and pulled them up through the trunk of that tree by a process called photosynthesis. Now, the guys in the booth have a picture to show you, and it's a picture of the surface of the sun. That's the surface of the sun. And it looks kind of like um, uh, corn kernels, except they're not in rows. And each one of those kernels is larger than the state of Texas. And those kernels of, of, of boiling magma, effusing light rays, they shoot out for 93 million miles and they hit this apple tree in Wisconsin. And those leaves do something called photosynthesis where they draw up all these nutrients and they combine it with carbon dioxide from the air and voila, you have this apple right here. Now, a um, little demonstration here, I hope, that will be effective if I cut a slice of this apple right here. And oh, 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 when we get to the inside of the apple, look at here, look at more marbles on the inside of the apple. Look at the patterns here, the seeds are are parked in a little station that's created for them there where they've been nourished by the, the, the stem that comes down through there and all this meat here with all of its nutrients and stuff and you can see the shiny knife, it's, it's uh, juicy in there and it's not just random juice, it's nutrient juice. It's good for us. So that if I take a bite of this apple right here and I'm gonna do this on purpose, you know, my mother told me not to talk with my mouth full or chew with my mouth open, but I'm trying to get you to sense the juiciness of this apple. Mm -hmm. You know, in the first service, I only ate one bite, but I'm in your service. Now, before your very eyes, a marvelous thing is happening. This apple, right now, that I chewed with my teeth and I'm swallowing it and mixing it with digestive juices. This apple is becoming a crab tree. <laughs> and so, if later this, this afternoon or later this week, I hug my wife this apple is hugging my wife, because this apple has become this. this. Thank you, Lord, for that. He ordained that sun, 93 million miles away, would produce light 
that would help create this apple that would go into my mouth and make Sam Crabtree to hug Vicky. Now, part of what I'm trying to illustrate here is a question that some people have when they think of prayer. They think, why pray? God's going to do what he's going to do. Well, James teaches us, you have not because you ask not. Now, God could have said, this apple, there's nutrients in there. Sam, I'm going to put those nutrients in you. Just bam, there they are. They're, now they're in you. You don't have to eat the apple. I'll just put the nutrients in you. He could do it that way. But he's ordained that I bite into the apple, chew it, swallow it, pick it from the tree. He's ordained the ends and the means. You have not because you ask not. He's ordained the having and he's ordained the asking. That's why he says in Hebrews, draw near, draw near. I'm commanding you, draw near. Ask for your apple. And ask with specificity. When I thank God, I don't just want to say, thank you for my food. That's okay, that's good, do that. Thank you for this apple. If I knew what kind of apple it was, I would even say what kind of apple. Does anybody know what this kind of apple would be? It's not delicious, it's not Macintosh, it's not Honeycrisp, it's I don't know what it is, but if I knew that, I think it's good to pray with the name of the apple. Thank you, Lord, for these speckles. Thank you for this skin in here. We might call it fiber, which was, is good for us. Thank you for this meat in here. Thank you for the juices that are in here. Thank God with specificity. It's a way to pray. I'm going to give you one more way to pray because I'm out of time. I wear white sweat socks when I work out. When I ride bike and so forth, I wear white wet socks. And I, I, I had run out of sweat socks a couple years ago or was down to my last pair or something. And so I gave some money to my granddaughter, Lily, and I said, what I'd like you to do is buy me some sweat socks for Christmas. Here's the money. You buy me some sweat socks. You pick out what they look like. I don't care if it's the stripes or the, the brand or <clears throat> whatever. And so she did. And the deal was, if you'll buy me sweat socks, every time I put on a pair, I'll pray for you. She bought me the sweat socks. I pray for her every time I put on the sweat socks. Now, what I'm trying to say to you is, for you to approach the throne of grace, you don't have to get all cleaned up, take a shower, and go to seminary, and become all learned in talking to God in fancy language. You can approach the throne while you're putting your socks on. And I think Vicki would tell you that I think I'd seen changes in my granddaughter. I don't know if it's owing to prayer, but I'm not going to say it's not. We have not because we ask not. Let's draw near. Now, one way to draw near, and it helps me to pray with other people because they pray in ways that coach me. They pray, they pray about things that I w wouldn't have thought of maybe, and they pray things, they pray texts, they pray phrases that I think, oh, that's good. I should be thinking that way. And so it's good for me to come to prayer meetings. Well, we're having some this week, prayer week at Bethlehem. There's one at 7 in the morning on Wednesday that Pastor Vince Johnson will be leading. There's one at 545 Wednesday evening in the prayer room that I'll be leading. And then Friday night is a, an evening of prayer, a night of prayer from 7 to 10. And the Fullers that I see sitting back over here are having a prayer workshop on Sunday mornings starting January 17th. Uh, you might want to participate in that prayer workshop. At the beginning of this message, I told you that I prayed 
that the superiority of Jesus would inflame our motivation to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. So be it. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.